Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's also where you can find details of our events in person and online, including on November the 30th, a conversation with former presidential candidate Andrew Yang. Coming up on the show today, Mary Cerotti, Kravis Distinguished Professor of Historical Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and author of the new book, Not One Inch, America, Russia and the Making of Post-Cold War Stalemate. Uh, Mary, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you so much. Honoured to be here. So congratulations uh, on the new book. So where was that one inch? That phrase, not one inch, it was clear once the Berlin Wall came down on November 9th, 1989, that the Cold War order was crumbling. The question was, what next? And heated diplomacy ensued immediately over the reconstruction of, or I should say construction of, a new post-Cold War order. And as part of that, uh, in a conversation that has since become infamous, the U.S. Secretary of State James Baker met with the then Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev and speculated, I emphasize speculated, this was a hypothetical conversation, about a potential bargain where Gorbachev let his part of Germany go and in exchange the West would ensure that NATO would, quote, not shift one inch eastward from its present position. By way of background, the reason this conversation had to take place was that Germany in 1990 was, of course, still an occupied country. As a result of the end of the Second World War, the four victor powers, the US, the UK, France, and the Soviet Union, had divided up and occupied Germany. And in legal terms, with some modifications, that was essentially still the case in 1990. So the Soviet Union had not only approximately 400,000 troops in its part of Germany, but also the legal right to keep them there. So in order for the natural consequence of the wall coming down to happen, namely for Germany to unify, Moscow, Mikhail Gorbachev, had to be convinced to give up both his troops and his legal rights. And so there were a series of negotiations about this. And at that, one of them, one of the early ones, Baker uttered, as I said, the speculative notion that uh, not one inch, NATO would move not one inch eastward in exchange for Germany unifying. The problem was that Baker, Secretary of State James Baker, was actually out of step with his boss, President George H.W. Bush, and the National Security Advisor, Brent Scowcroft, who had a very different idea. Their idea was that NATO would move eastward and there would just be concessions as it did so. And Baker was out of the loop and didn't realize that. As soon as he got home after that, the president and, and Scowcroft advised him of that, and he dropped that statement but it took Gorbachev a while to notice. Yeah, I think I think you say in the book you quote uh, President Bush as saying, to hell with that. Yes, it, President Bush later, and again, this is all from internal documents, some of which I got declassified, so these were not public positions. It, that President George H.W. Bush, in response to a suggestion that perhaps they should follow this approach or compromise more with Moscow, responded, to hell with that. As I said, this was an internal approach. Publicly, the Bush administration was talking about a new world order, about cooperation with the Soviet Union, but internally, the the story looked different. I I, I suppose one of the things, Mary, as well, is that, you know, those of us who lived through that period, sometimes it's easy to forget just how quickly all of this happened, how 
quickly the wall came down and then how soon the Soviet Union uh, collapsed a, a couple of years later. That, that, that sense of urgency of everything that we had grown up thinking about the world order uh, just suddenly wasn't there anymore. Yes, it's amazing to me as a historian how great events don't always necessarily have great causes. Major changes can happen very, very quickly. In fact, I use in this book and in much of my writing a theory from evolutionary biology called punctuated equilibrium. And what that means is uh, roughly the following. The evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould used to say, I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, but roughly he used to say, I as an evolutionary biologist, what I do not see is a little evolution one day and a little evolution another day and a little evolution right after that. In other words, I don't see gradualism. What I see are long periods of stasis or equilibrium punctuated by dramatic events, dramatic changes that can happen very, very quickly, such as an asteroid striking the earth and throwing up such a, a dense shroud of debris that it cools the temperature of the surface of the earth that it cools the temperature of the surface of the earth, causing the dinosaurs to die out and giving mammals a chance to become the dominant species, thereby establishing a new stasis or equilibrium. And I found that very useful in my own writing because I believe the events we're talking about now, the wall coming down, the Soviet Union collapsing, those were punctuational events and they ch caused change very, very quickly. And one of the reasons why I use that phrase, not one inch as the title, is that its meaning starts to shift. So you have, as I just described, this controversy from February 1990, this hypothetical bargain, where what not one inch means is that NATO will not move one inch eastward. But after this, this punctuational event of the collapse of the Soviet Union, Washington realizes it can not only win big, but win bigger. And gradually, Washington comes to apply the opposite meaning to that saying that not one inch of territory needed to be off limits to NATO. And so my book tells this arc from the shift of one meaning of not one inch to the opposite meaning. I mean, there were there were some people even at the time who were warning about this, most famously of all, that great Cold War strategist, George Kennan. I mean, he he warned uh, NATO that, that, that expansion was a bad idea. I mean, one of the stories of your book is that, uh, at least in terms of the relationship with Russia, he was right. Well, George Kennan was obviously a hugely intelligent man, and I think he got some aspects of his critique right, but not all of them. Kennan, I'm paraphrasing here, Kennan called NATO expansion the greatest strategic blunder of the post-Cold War era. I have a slightly different take. I think that NATO expansion was a justifiable response to the geopolitics of the 1990s. The Central and Eastern Europeans who had courageously thrown off the yoke of Soviet control wanted to join NATO. They were sovereign states. They had the right to ask for that. They wanted to undo the Yalta situation where they had been left behind the Iron Curtain. And NATO responded positively to their requests. And that was neither unprecedented nor unreasonable. NATO had expanded during the Cold War. It, it, it was therefore following a precedent. So I do not think NATO expansion per se was an unreasonable strategy. The problem was how it happened. It happened in a way that maximized Moscow's frustration, aggravation, and opposition. 
and in the long run, it served Western interests less well than alternative manners of expanding NATO might have done. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems that one of the, the major points of criticism that you have is that there was a, a lack of complex thinking going on that uh, at one stage early on in the book, you say, should the West have offered protection to former Soviet states or should they have promoted cooperation with a new fragile Russian democracy? The correct answer, you say, was both. Yes, this is the difficult, difficult conundrum facing the policymakers of the era. And I have to say, I approached this topic with a lot of humility because as we were just discussing, events were very fast moving. I, as a historian, have the luxury of looking back with all the time in the world. It, it, when it was actually happening, policymakers had to make decisions at speed very, very quickly. And they didn't have time to focus on specific details or complex uh, counterfactual scenarios. So the, um, the tension, the fundamental tension throughout the book is between two desirable goals. One goal, of course, was to encourage the new democracies, not only in Central Europe, but also in the post-Soviet space. And as I mentioned, those states very much wanted to join NATO. On the other hand, the 1990s were an unbelievably precious thaw in the Cold War. Cold Wars are not short-lived affairs, so thaws are immensely valuable. And in the 1990s, suddenly there was this moment of genuine cooperation between Washington and Moscow. And that cooperation expressed itself in many, many forms, above all in nuclear cooperation. It was the greatest episode since the dawn of the atomic age for disarmament and non-proliferation. The United States worked closely with Russia to ensure that there was only one nuclear successor state to the Soviet Union and to ensure that the parts of the Soviet arsenal that had ended up outside Russia were either relocated to Russia or destroyed. It was a truly remarkable period where I would say, argue that the world became a safer place. And it became clear that these two goals were in tension over the question of NATO expansion. Because when Central and Eastern Europeans wanted to join NATO, that started to increase irritation, friction, unwillingness, opposition in Russia. The person who saw this most clearly at the time was the American Secretary of Defense, Bill Perry. Bill Perry came very, very close to resigning over what he called the premature start of NATO expansion. He repeatedly went to the American president, Bill Clinton, and said words to approximately the following. He said, I have the greatest respect for Central and Eastern Europe. It is hugely courageous what they did, but I am the Secretary of Defense of the United States of America. My job is to make America safer. And I'm currently doing a great job because together with my colleagues in Moscow, I am decreasing by leaps and bounds the number of missiles pointed at the United States. And if you're going to rush NATO expansion, President Clinton, you're going to undermine my ability to do that. You're going to undermine my ability to keep the United States safe. So please don't move forward so quickly. And Clinton disagreed. And Secretary Perry almost resigned. He did not at the time, but he said in his memoirs later that he wished he had, that the consequences of premature NATO expansion were even worse than he had expected. So this is the fundamental tension between the book is somehow responding to these justified claims, justifiable claims from Central and Eastern Europe to be prioritized, but also protecting that cooperation with Moscow. And that is the central tension in the book. 
Yeah, and, I mean, you talk about uh, Secretary Perry there in contrast to uh, President Clinton and uh, the the view of uh, President Bush that you talked about uh, pre- before that. I mean, it, it seems to me that the, the Defence Secretary there has a, a much better appreciation of history because you talk about how important that is, but anybody with any familiarity with Russian history knows that they've been invaded from the West by Napoleon, by the Kaiser, by Hitler, there's been the Cold War, that they're always going to be sensitive about encroachment into what they see as a traditional Russian sphere of influence. So there is an, there is an element of inevitability Well, again, we come to the this, central tension there? there, which is you have, as you rightly said, this intense Russian sensitivity. But on the other hand, NATO expansion is very much a demand-driven phenomenon, and there is sensitivity in Central and Eastern Europe as well. And they very much want to have protection from the Article 5 guarantee of NATO, which is the heart of the NATO alliance. That Article 5 states that any alliance member will regard an attack on one as an attack on all. It's a very, very powerful guarantee. And so the question was how to square the circle of responding to Central and Eastern Europe while still maintaining manageable relations with Russia. And the heartbreaking aspect of my book is that I believe the United States actually found a workable solution. It found a way to square that circle. And that was in what I've called the Scandinavian strategy. I've described this both in the book and in my recent foreign affairs article, which might interest your listeners as well. And briefly, the Scandinavian strategy was a recognition of the reality that the closer NATO moved to Moscow, the more problematic it became. In essence, it was a recognition that the cost per inch of NATO expansion went up as it got geographically closer to Moscow. And the reason I call it the Scandinavian strategy is that it had originated back at the time of NATO's founding. One of the original NATO members, Norway, actually had a border with the Soviet Union. And so Norway, in recognition of that fact, in recognition, so to speak, of the fact that the cost per inch of Norwegian territory joining the alliance was higher than that of, say, Spain, Norway and other countries in Scandinavia, Denmark too, negotiated special terms. So no nuclear weapons on its land or ports, no foreign troops in peacetime, and so forth. And the idea there was to keep, was to balance both, the the idea there was to provide a balance between, on the one hand, joining NATO, but on the other hand, keeping long-term frictions with Moscow manageable. And this was a savvy strategy for Norway, which lived in a neighborhood that was Soviet adjacent, but not Soviet controlled. And my argument is that the Scandinavian strategy should have guided NATO's expansion into Central and Eastern Europe since it was functionally in a similar position in the post-Cold War period. It was in a neighborhood that was Russian adjacent, but not Russian controlled. And there were people at the time who figured this out. Secretary Perry, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, John Shalikashvili, who had actually been born in Poland, uh, Joe Kruzel at the Defense Department, some members of the National Security Council. And they came up with a, a strategy, the Partnership for Peace, which allowed for NATO to expand slowly in a diffuse way and in phases. In other words, it allowed for the management of contingency. You could have different forms of membership as you got closer to Moscow and recognition of the cost per inch. And that this is not a counterfactual. This was actually implemented. This was actually policy. But for a variety of reasons, which I describe in the book, Clinton, who initially endorses this strategy, because as he, as, he, as he himself says, it does not draw a new line across Europe, it does not leave Ukraine in the lurch, Clinton 
has a profound change of heart and after and after having implemented this policy, he pushes it aside. And he switches to a manner of expansion that causes much more friction. And that, I argue, is when relations start to go downhill between the United States and Russia. Yeah, and I think it's important to say that we're not just talking about moving chess pieces on the uh, international board here, that the the deteriorating relations with Russia that you're talking about, you know, this proves a fertile ground for the rise of an authoritarian leader uh, in Russia like uh, Vladimir Putin. Yes, absolutely. I should take a moment to be clear that I am not arguing uh, NATO expansion is 100% solely to blame for the deterioration in relations between Washington and Moscow. As a historian, the one phenomenon I have never observed is monocausality. Important events happen for multiple reasons. They also happen over time, which means there's a cumulative succession of causes. And so the book, as you know, describes how NATO expansion interacted with other pressures on the young, fragile, nascent Russian democracy. And it also interacted with self-harming Russian choices. In other words, there is both agency on the part of Americans and agency on the part of Russians. And those all interact to produce the deterioration, particularly harming our uh, Russian President Boris Yeltsin's choices to shed the blood of his political opponents in Moscow in 1993 and Chechnya in 1994. That decision to shed blood, that is one of the main motivations that causes Clinton to reconsider, because it means that leaders of Central and Eastern European countries call him and say, look, the new Russia is just like the old Russia. They're shedding blood in Moscow and Chechnya. Tomorrow they're going to do it on our soil. We needed Article 5 yesterday. So there's this interaction between the U.S. choices and the Russian choices, and, and they are cumulative. And I argue that in this, this punctuational moment or ordering moment of the end of the Cold War of Soviet collapse, there were multiple timelines towards the future. But once you start to have this unfortunate interaction between the American choices and the Russian choices, you start to foreclose other options and you start to tend towards the timeline that does, as you've indicated, end with Vladimir Putin becoming president of Russia. And so the story that I'm telling is really focused on the years 1989 to 1999. And it was interesting to me as an author because it became apparent to me that Putin was present at the beginning and at the end of the story in significant ways. At the beginning of the story, he was on the ground in East Germany as a mid-level KGB agent regarding in horror the collapse of, of Soviet control and wishing that Moscow would use force. As a matter of fact, he tries to get his superiors to use force and he gets the answer, Moscow is silent, an answer that he said haunted him for years and shapes his leadership to this day. And then by the end of the story, he's 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 gone home from a collapsing East Germany to a collapsing Soviet Union. He's struggled to find his footing, but eventually he starts his political rise and he then rises to the presidency. Now, it didn't have to be the end of the Cold War. The ultimate outcome of the end of the Cold War did not have to be the rise of Vladimir Putin to the presidency. But once he does attain that power, then all these grievances that he's been nursing, they all then become hugely significant because then they shape how he rules Russia to this day.
I mean, as you say, we we need to be careful about uh, taking simplistic uh, solutions or uh, simplistic analysis. And as I as I said earlier, that's the thing that you really embrace in this book: complexity. That these are not easy issues to deal with. So, so how do we draw lessons from that? What lessons can we draw uh, about uh, relations between the United States, NATO, uh, and Russia today? Yeah. Well, at the toward the end of the book, I take stock of the unfortunate new hostility between the United States and Russia. I, I wish that were not the case. I wish that the post-Cold War moment of optimism still dominated our relations. I was, as a young person, studying abroad in West Berlin in 1989. So I experienced that moment of optimism firsthand, and I still remember it viscerally. And I, if, if I had known back then as a student that it, it would disappear by within my lifetime, I would have been shocked and saddened to hear that. So the question is, how do we deal with where we are now? Uh, the end of the book, I offer three suggestions. The first is making a virtue of necessity. The fact that we have Cold War tensions again is, of course, nothing to be celebrated. But it does perhaps provide a new means of rallying a fractious American political world. At least some part of the Republican Party was never comfortable with Trump's embrace of Putin and of Russia. And so it provides a way to perhaps find a foreign, it provides a way to find common ground in foreign policy between Democrats and Republicans as we face these challenges. So try to make a virtue of that necessity. Another principle is that a, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste, and that this, this, these new tensions that we have with Russia can help us to improve our relations with our European allies, which I believe to be hugely important. We need to work together with our European allies to deal with the challenges posed by Russia today. And then the third principle is that we need to understand it's not possible to accurately predict the future, but you certainly can prepare for it. And the best way I know of to prepare for the future is to study the past, to look at what happened during the Cold War and the post-Cold War thaw and try to understand what went wrong. I think that we should have stuck with more creative policymaking, such as the Partnership for Peace. I think that would have led to an outcome that was, in, I think that would have led to an outcome that was longer term in the U.S. interest. And when we get to the post-Putin moment, whenever that comes, we should be open to new forms and new opportunities of interaction with Russia. In other words, we shouldn't just keep doing the same thing. We should understand that these punctuational moments are rare and we need to seize them. I believe right now, unfortunately, sadly, we're now in a new period of stasis or equilibrium. And the best we can do right now is to make the best of the status quo. I don't think this is an ordering moment where dramatic changes are possible. But the post-Putin moment is coming, and it would be worthwhile spending some time thinking about it and thinking about creative ways that we could restructure our relationship with Russia. We could restructure our relationship with Russia because that thaw will probably also be very brief, and we don't want to let it slip away in the way that we let the, the thaw of the 1990s slip away.
Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by that uh, point about the status quo. I mean, you, you do take a very Burkean line about NATO. If NATO disappeared, you say, uh, that would be a disaster. The best course is to make the best of the status quo. But you do also make it sound like a bit of a, a rescue mission. You say that the, the house is burning and the focus needs to be on putting the fire, uh, putting out the fire and keeping the, the structure stable. So, so the, the, there is a sense of whatever the status quo is, it, it's pretty, pretty fragile at the moment. Yes. The, to be clear, I, as I've been saying, in a non-Burkean fashion, I argue in favor of innovation, or let me put it this way, I argue retroactively in favor of innovation. I think that there should have been more changes in international relations in the 1990s to reflect what had happened, to reflect this dramatic punctuational moment of the wall coming down. But now that we are in a new stasis or equilibrium, different rules apply. And given the risks posed by Russia and today's intense strains on the transatlantic relationship, it does not currently make sense to add to them by trying to undo the past. As, as you rightly mentioned, I point out that when a house is burning, it is inadvisable to start a home renovation, no matter how badly you needed it before the fire started. When you're in a situation as we're in now, post-pandemic, with populist uprisings, when you're in a situation like this, the focus needs to be on putting out the fire and keeping the structure stable. But once we're in a punctuational moment again, then I would say that's a time for creative thinking on the level that we saw after the end of the Second World War. When, yeah, that, can I can I pick yeah. up on that? Because that that's a really interesting point. Because I I kept thinking about this as I as I was reading the book that that post war generation who created NATO, not to mention the CIA, the Department of Defense, they rolled out the Marshall Plan, containment, NSC sixty eight. I mean, frankly, the generation for uh, at nineteen ninety who are trying to do the same thing, create a new world order. I mean, they do not compare well, do they, in comparison uh, to that late 40s, early 50s generation? Ah, well, see, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure the 1990s generation is trying to create a new world order. Certainly... Is, the, is that part of the problem? I, I would argue, yes. Uh, the Certainly... The revolutions from below in Central and Eastern Europe in 1989 showed a desire for a new world order from the ground up. But in this book and in my, my previous books, The Collapse in 1989, I argue that this revolution from below did not meet with a matching revolution from above. In other words, there was pressure for a new world, but a new world order did not emerge out of it. And it makes sense if you think about it. The It was primarily, this process of shaping post-Cold War order was primarily being driven by the United States. And the United States felt that it had just won the Cold War and it had done so with NATO. And it, to use an American saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. NATO had, was the most successful military alliance in history. So for what reason would you want to have you know new institutions there were people on the ground at the time after the wall came down calling for new forms of european security the west german foreign minister the west german foreign minister hans dietrich genscher for example wanted a new pan european security organization mikhail gorbachev talked about merging nato and the warsaw pact Genscher went him one better and said, let's have NATO and the Warsaw Pact dissolve into a composite of common collective security. And then there were dissidents on the ground. 
uh, former people who had been former dissidents who had been in prison. They had risen from prisons to, to presidencies, but they were still pacifists largely. And they had not made their revolution just to become part of a Western military bloc. And so some of these dissidents who were gaining political power proposed dissolving all borders in Central and Eastern Europe and demilitarizing all of Central and Eastern Europe and making it a perpetually demilitarized zone of peace and bridge between East and West. Now you can say that's crazy, but that would have been a new world order. And of course, George H.W. Bush, the West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl, they did not want NATO to dissolve. They did not want that to happen. And so one of the reasons they moved so quickly to establish a post-Cold War order was to cut off these alternative visions. In other words, there was at the end of 1989-90, uh, what from the American point of view is an understandable push to perpetuate the existing order, not to change it. And of course, as all political scientists know and say, institutions are sticky, right? So once you have something like NATO, it's most likely going to continue to exist. That's the most likely outcome. What's surprising is that Washington was able to carry that off while still labeling it a new world order, which it wasn't. You So you, you say alternate visions, but was it just that, that uh, President Bush and the Bush administration, just to use that phrase, they just didn't have the vision thing at all? Uh, President Bush famously said of himself, I, I, I don't do the vision thing. That was his own self-description. And he felt very strongly, and I, I can understand this view from his point of view, his president of the United States, that the correct course of action was to perpetuate NATO and to perpetuate many of the relationships from the Cold War. That means that the 1989 ordering moment was very different from, as you rightly point out, the post-World War II ordering moment. After World War II, that ordering moment, there was very much a sense of a need for change, uh, a need to produce a situation that wouldn't yield a world war every generation. So the thinking in 1989, what sometimes we refer to as the present at the creation moment, was very different from the thinking in 1989. And I, when you, so the 1989 team was not, I think, actually trying to create a new world order. So I would suggest that when we get to a new ordering moment or a thought, that we try to look more to 1949 for guidance. And so, I mean, final question, will we look back on this period as the the great missed opportunity or or is it that the new world order was always going to be about a rising China and maybe uh, Russia was going to be a, an important part of that, but not the central part of it? Obviously, China's rise is a hugely significant independent story. The question is, would we have been better placed to deal with that if we had better relations with Russia? And I would argue yes. Had we prioritized the relations with Russia, had we continued with the Partnership for Peace manner of expanding NATO, which by the way, Russia actually joined, we would have had fewer frictions within Europe and increased our ability to deal with Asia. Now, obviously, this is a counterfactual, so it's difficult to prove. But the current situation that we're in, we now have, of course, renewed tensions with Russia, as obviously China is becoming an ever larger factor in everyone's thinking. So I think we need to always bear in mind what challenges might be coming down the pike in the future. And obviously, the big challenge that we're thinking about now is China. 
So the book is Not One Inch, America, Russia, and the Making of Post-Cold War Stalemate. Uh, it's written by my guest, Mary Sorotti, uh, and published by Yale University Press. But for now, Mary, congratulations again on the book. It's an absolute tour de force. Uh, thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damien Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.